John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1187.EC0409, certificate number 26170. Solidarność. When the government yet again raised food prices in the summer of 1980, workers at the Gdansk shipyard staged an illegal strike. We like to ask ourselves on this show whether our topics are compatible with Marxism. It's the number one. Thing. Remember when we were wondering if the Columbia Pictures lady was compatible with Marxism or the real-life bear that Winnie the Pooh was based on? If you, if you think about the two poles of Omnibus politically, we can't tax the rich because of all the great work they do in the world. So many of history's great eccentricities would not have existed if not for people with too much time on their hands. But are the rich compatible with Marxism? See, often they're not. Yeah, that's that's the thing about the rich. Even if they talk a good game on, uh, you know, about Bernie Sanders online, right? You know, if if uh, if somebody wants to put low income housing near Dave Chappelle, oof! Sometimes he gets mad. He does. He withdraws his support from the local golf course. Man, I wish I had enough power to withdraw my support from anything, really. But what would you say? Do you think that? leftism is compatible with Marxism. <laughs> like this current state of American leftism, such as it is? No, I would, uh, specifically, uh, unionism, labor unions, are they compatible with Marxism? They should be. They should be. And yet. <laughs> they so th- often aren't. Th- thereby hangs a tail <laughs> today. It's so it, tricky. I guess in theory they're compatible with all kinds of democratic socialism. And yet, just like anybody else, you put Marxists in power and they don't want to hear anybody anything from anybody. It's pretty tricky. Much less isn't labor it? unions. Yeah. Although labor unions are um, very definitely a movement of the worker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, so is Marxism. I'm going to write a PhD dissertation in history about how labor unions are definitely a movement of the worker. Yeah, I think I think I can say that. In short, Poland is a land of contrasts. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if uh, if labor unions have really any bearing on whether or not you can tax the rich. 
I think well, you could have labor unions and also not tax the rich. I mean, once the rich have enough power to determine tax policy, they're also in parallel tend to be weakening labor unions. Right, but labor unions could defeat the rich and still not have imposed any tax on them. That's they could true. defeat them through through the power of organizing. Labor organizers could say, look, we want a good living wage. We want benefits. Mm-hmm. We don't want our kids in coal mines anymore. Right. We want to uh, we want to have good retirements from from a lifetime of of solid work. We don't want our fingers falling off because they made us like stir the uranium powder exactly. with our bare hands. Exactly. And yet we don't think there should be a billionaire tax because those guys like us are doing good work. Sure, they are. Sure, they, they're buying mining companies and they're interested in all kinds of weird. Uh, fads and vanity projects uh-huh. that will uh, that will someday future power many a future podcast. Space exploration and electric trucks and all kinds of cool things. None of which work, right? But you really got to admire the moxie. Oh, did you see the other day that all of those satellites got hit with a with a, a space bomb? No. Oh yeah, there was a solar flare. And, um, are these, whose new satellites are these Elon's? Uh, well, what, what are the ones, what are space link or whatever? Is that, is that Elon? Yeah. Uh, you know, SpaceX has been throwing up a bunch of Elon Musk satellites and not just, they're all shaped like his head. Yeah. Not just 1955 Camaros, but, but, um, all kinds of, you know, there's, it's building the whole space network. People are mad, but there was a solar storm and 40 of them. 40 of them got blasted by the, by space rays and like fell into the atmosphere and burned up and are just, just like gone. You know what? That's the number of Tesla model threes. It's an ambulance every hour. So who cares? <laughs> that, that must've been expensive and a big disappointment, right? All the people at SpaceX headquarters, deep, deep under a volcano <laughs> must've watched those 40 satellites burning up. Just like, Oh man. Right before it happened, they were like, as long as we can do this, I would feel a hundred percent confident about our future moon and Mars habitations. Yep. And right then Oof. all their satellites blew up. They all started working on space umbrellas <laughs> because of those darn solar storms. It's the, it, it's the scene in, um, don't look up where Mark Rylance starts edging to the side of the room. Oh, well, that's not great. <laughs> um, you know, I like to talk about uh, mid-century communism, uh, Soviet uh, practices. People can't see this, but right now John is wearing a varsity sweatshirt that says mid-century communism in that fun collegiate font. Oh my God, if somebody wants to make me a 50s college sweater that says mid-century communism... <laughs> Oh, I'll wear it every three days. Pulling the hammer and sickle from his varsity sweater. He turns Czechoslovakia back into Slovakia. Uh, well, Czechoslovakia, of course, one of the, um, one of the sites of mid-century protest against uh, the Soviet spear. Until, sphere. You, until you send in the tanks. Until you send in the tanks. Everybody's for fun experimental drama and radio plays in Eastern Europe until you see the Soviet tanks. And, you know, that famously, if not started, then was, you know, kind of most prominently, um, what, debuted, initiated the whole Soviet tank into town uh, policy. 
started in Hungary in 1956. Hungary kind of invented it. They really did. They were ahead of the game. And then Red, it ended in Red Dawn, the movie Red Dawn. It ended in Red Dawn 2, in, uh, the one that came. In Gillette, Wyoming. I don't know. What's the last city to have Soviet <laughs> tanks going through it? It was I, Kabul, and then it was whatever city Red Dawn happened. I think in. Red Dawn 2 happened in Spokane or something. It kept moving. What if Spokane was the last city to, be, uh, to have Soviet tanks roll through? I mean, I know it pretty well, so... I feel like we could make a readout there up on the South Hill by some old mansion. <laughs> Wolverines. <laughs> uh, in Hungary in 56, you know, on the last episode, we talked about um, General Dwight D. Eisenhower's failings as a, as a, a phys- president. As a physical fitness guru. Physical fitness guru. Great general, lousy fitness guru. I hate his exercise tape. Uh, Eisenhower also was kind of a bummer in uh, the context of mid-50s anti-communism. You wouldn't think. He was a bummer in that he was uh, was too into it, wasn't into it enough. Uh, well, you, this might surprise you to, to learn, but um, oftentimes in American politics, what politicians say and what they do can differ by a wide margin. What? Yep, I'm afraid so. Often promises are made that then are not fulfilled. Did Ike's mouth make promises that his butt couldn't keep? Well, it's much more the the conservative movement in general. Now, let let us not on this show besmirch the reputation of American conservatism, but in, that's their job. In the you know in the late forties, early fifties, they were very virulently anti communist, mm-hmm. and they made a lot of big showy kind of pronouncements. They had lists of how many communists were in the State Department. They did. And in I have a list right here of weird things you can do with borax. <laughs> That's all I've got. It's right here. I have in front of me a list of 258 <laughs> weird things you can do with borax in the State Department. Have you no decency, sir? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a you know there was uh, in campaigns again in particular against Democrats, Truman, etc. Um, soft on communism was a was a an accusation that was made against anyone that wasn't hard on communism. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And uh, a lot of those, uh, a lot of that rhetoric got pretty amped up by the mid-50s to suggest that America not only being a beacon of democracy um, was also kind of a supporter of global resistance to communism, which we, we know continued to be American policy, but there was an implication thick in the air that America would actually step in, intervene, not by like um, fighting Ho Chi Minh in the jungles, but actually like Eastern Bloc. We'd start rolling tanks into Spokane and uh, Budapest as well. Yeah, we'd push back against Soviet expansion. Um, and arguably... Uh, although it, it, it's kind of like this, uh, it's kind of like we, we see in social media now, it's a, it's very clear. It was very, very clearly kind of the way Donald Trump managed his rhetoric. He never actually says explicitly the slander or the promise. You know, he never says take over the Capitol. He says somebody should do something at the Capitol today, this afternoon. And there were a lot of promises made through the instruments of Radio Free Europe and other kind of American propaganda machines in the mid-50s. It cost us nothing to encourage uh, popular revolts. Suggesting that revolt in Eastern Europe would produce um, a, a successful result. 
America had your back, in other words. Instead of just producing a bunch of dead poll and Czech student leaders. And the Eisenhower administration very, very definitely wanted to kind of uh, rope in that sentiment as part of their appeal to populism, but they had no intention of intervening in Europe at any time, you know, from the, from the start to the finish, they were like, we're not gonna, that's, you know, we, we might plan the Bay of Pigs cause it seems like Castro's a, a patsy or, you know, how, how hard is Cuba? Right. And that's all Monroe doctrine driven stuff, but like, yeah, Budapest is not a hundred miles away from Florida. Yeah, so. Poland. No, thanks. But I, but nobody told the CIA. And so in the, <laughs> <laughs> so often seems to happen. It's weird, right? What's with the pneumatic tubes that are supposed to go to uh, to the CIA? They, they just don't get to Langley, I guess. So the CIA actually was like overflying Hungary and dropping leaflets that said things like the regime is weaker than you think and other kind of incitements. Never take up arms, right? but the regime is weaker than you think. And from the CIA's perspective, I think they expected that that would, you know, that people would uh, take baby steps yeah. toward democratizing. It slightly their... destabilizes, not a lot of downside if it doesn't. Radio Free Europe also saying stuff like that all the time. Uh, the Hungarian station of the Radio Free Europe was full of, uh, like, bitter hardliners. So, of course, there, you know, there was nobody at Radio Free Europe headquarters that was, like, listening that closely to what the Hungarian station was saying, right? Like uh, it, it, it broadcast throughout Eastern Europe in various languages. Is that right? And so, you know, the radio free Europe in the Czech language or in the, in Polish or in Hungarian, you know, they had different editorial policy just because of who they had, right? Who, who was doing the work. And so they were, you know, saber rattling and whatnot. Cause they'd been all the people who had gotten pushed out before. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we were never, the CIA was never above collaborating with dubiously nationalist expats. It never happened in Iraq or Afghanistan, like <laughs> in living memory, for sure. <laughs> and so the Hungarian people, I think famously, uh, because, because there was an underground economy of information too, right? There was no resistance newspaper, but it was all kind of a word of mouth game of telephone. Uh, there grew to be, I think, among the students and the, the, the people of Hungary, a kind of idea that they might, um, well, if they like tried to overthrow the regime that, that, that the West, NATO, Austria, but especially America would have their backs. Sure. And so. Decide yourself if radio is going to stay. Reason it could polish up the gray. (laughs) Right. Right. Whatever that means. It, his lyrics meant nothing. I don't then. even. I don't even know if those are the right words. <laughs> they meant nothing then, and that was what was so great about them. When his <laughs> lyrics started to be intelligible, it was like when, uh, when the Smashing Pumpkins started to have intelligible lyrics, you were like, "Oh no, I didn't really want to know what you thought." It's just like Trump. If you can't tell what the words actually mean, you're like, "This guy has me and my interests at heart." Yeah. Michael Stipe knows what my family needs. Don't look too deeply. And it's up to par. And Katie bar the kitchen door, but not me in. Yeah. Every once in a while, you go. <laughs> The power lines do have floaters, <laughs> and it's because the airplanes won't get snagged, but what a, I don't want to know the rest. Yeah, no, like when he put the first lyrics to appear, I think, are world leader pretend on green, and it's very much like 
this is our issue album and it's important that you read these this trenchant commentary no pass no. nope 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 it's like uh it's like if my bloody valentine put their lyrics on the records wait those are lyrics <laughs> i thought my ears were just bleeding no they're not lyrics although they're better than you think but they're not they're not good uh, so yeah, the Hungarians rose up and there were, there was a period of two weeks where the tanks were, uh, well, where the, there was, it was this kind of crazy two week middle period where it seemed like, oh, maybe this is going to fly. And, um, after the, you know, after the fall of the wall, we went, once the Soviet archives opened up, it was clear that they kind of were not sure either. Right. You know, there what was, do we do? Yeah, there was Tito, who had his own kind of version of safe from the Russians uh, pseudo-communism. I'm, I'm my own guy. I'm my own guy. And the I think the Politburo was like, mm, I don't maybe know. Maybe we just want a bunch of kind of quasi-Marxist border states. Sure. Yeah. Um, and But then they looked, and the West did nothing. The West was quiet. Eisenhower was super-duper quiet. So you're saying... If Eisenhower rolls tanks into Budapest in 56 or whatever this is, Cold War is over by Christmas. No, I think I think if Eisenhower had just said something nice. About, oh, I see. If, if, if he it, had just eaten some goulash on TV. Yeah, it was just uh, just diplomacy. If, if the West had been like, we support, you know, unilaterally the Hungarians and this is, you know, how dare you? I think a the, free people. Yeah, a free people. I think the Russians would have... I mean, according to their own, uh, their own records, maybe have said, okay, sure. You can be whatever, you know, I don't think the Hungarian people in 56 thought that they were going to become Las Vegas. No, they just wanted shorter, uh, paprika limes. (laughs) Exactly. More, a chicken in every pot. (laughs) That's all anybody wants. Paprika, chicken paprika in every papri pot. (laughs) But then the tanks rolled in and the uh, the uh, rebellion was crushed and Hungary was crushed. crushed and they were super sad and also bitter and cynical and mad. That's what I meant by crushed. Crushed is a synonym. Yeah. Well, orange crush. <laughs> the average age of a combat soldier in Vietnam was 19. And that, you know, that Hungarian resentment lasted all the way until now. One might say, if it's I a Hungarian of the correct age, yeah. I mean, I definitely have heard Hungarians in Hungary say that America betrayed them. You guys didn't have our backs. You know, there's a lot of of pro Americanism still there, but also it's tainted with a feeling that life could have been different. But there's another way of looking at it, which is that the uh, Soviets felt pretty ginger about Hungary and recognizing that this had happened once, they didn't want it to happen again. And so made, made concessions, small ones over the course of the next, uh, half century. Well, no, that would have ended in 1990. So not a half century, (laughs) but you know, the, the next 30 years, 30 plus years, that they could have been tougher on Prague or whatever. Uh, well, they could have been tougher on Budapest and, and, uh, you know, they, I think by the mid to late eighties, Hungary was the, the country in the Warsaw Pact that had the most prosperous, uh, and, and free 
you know, relatively free uh, independence. And that was the gap in the curtain, basically, once things started to fall apart, like before the wall came down, people started flooding into hunger. Right. And that was where, that was the first leak. And it was, you know, that was a place where they actually, like Hungarian leadership went out with, with, uh, wire cutters and started cutting a hole in the fence. Right. That was the, that was the place in the summer of 89 where, where democracy, well, eventually, yeah. That was the leak in the hot tub of. The wall opened. Of communism. In my in my metaphor, communism is a hot tub. Communism is a hot tub. I it's think relaxing, that's, <laughs> but if you stay in too long, it's not great. I think it's compatible. Well, is it compatible with Marxism? Hot tubs are not compatible with Marxism no. unless everybody has one. Unless every collective farm has a hot tub, and as you know, and the animals can use it also. <laughs> from talking about Marxism with any uh, college freshman, uh, Soviet communism is not compatible with Marxism. That's true. It's never been tried. Right. Well, it has been tried. <laughs> but I'm just saying what the kid with the chapo poster. <laughs> oh, will tell sure, you. sure, sure. Uh, and and we'll get to that in a second. But um, it was betrayed almost immediately. Almost immediately. <laughs> Within seconds of its founding. In 19, so uh, forward a little bit of uh, more than a decade in 1968, the Czech people, also famously, uh, re- revolted against Soviet. Domination. It was spring. It was spring. The uh, love was in the air. It was 1968. Freedom was in the air. They had heard... Uh, Sergeant Pepper. They had heard Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> what are you no, talking about? Circus uh, posters. What is happening in the West? Who is Mr. Kite and how do I get on board? The Mr. Kite train. It really was us having better youth culture than them. Yeah. And it was the time of youth culture. And it seemed like, I mean, it was happening in Paris, although more, more, uh, insouciantly, more, more violently, more, uh, you know, every once in a while, a woman in a red stocking cap would, would expose her breast on a barricade. And it's because the Jefferson airplane song is that good, (laughs) but it was happening globally. And it seemed like now's our time. And, um, certainly the Czech, movement was uh was conscious of the the Hungarian situation in, uh, over a decade before and aware that they should be cautious but the Prague Spring was you know like an incredibly successful resistance movement and it produced a culture in the Czech Republic that was this you know and it, and it was and it came from a culture of like a literary culture and uh, arts and culture and student activism and and also crushed by tanks. Tanks are the worst. Tanks, tanks, tanks. No, no tanks. tanks, That's what I say. Yeah. We're against tanks here at, at Omnibus. Um, Like an Irish guy being offered a non-alcoholic beer. I say, ouch, no tanks. Wow. Slap in the face of all the Irish uh, people that are in AA meetings just, around the world. Just out of nowhere, too. They're like, what? Hey. We were just listening to this show, having a good time. He was time. talking about Eastern Europe, and then suddenly, out of oh, nowhere, this... pot shot at drunk Irish people. Yeah, anti-Irish slurs. It's okay. I can say it. I can say it. Why? You're not Irish. I'm slightly Irish. How Irish? <laughs> you do the thing I do, which is three like, thirty I'm seconds. Celtic, so I'm it's, enough. It's all the same. Five sixty fourths Irish. <laughs> so the uh, the Prague Prague Spring 
uh, gets uh, mushed by uh, the Soviet tanks. By the summer of non-love. And, uh, but it, it inspired the, it inspired movements in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and the, this period in East Europe was a time of inflation. Um, r- prices were rising, which is not compatible with Marxism. But wage- Price, Prices are incompatible with Marxism. <laughs> they are. They don't have the prices right there at all. Wages were stagnant. This all sounds suspiciously like a global economy. In Soviet Russia, a game show is called The Central Committee is Right. <laughs> Am I right, folks? You are. Got him. Um, the, uh, and in particular, I mean, this was all a kind of a, a, a sentiment. There was, there was at this time now several decades of, of, uh, of Warsaw Pact. And there were in all these countries of Eastern Europe that had formerly been part of the flourishing, uh, fond Austria-Hungarian empire or whatever Poland, whatever weird weirdly German dominated Prussian dominated Poland literary societies were, but certainly Prague um, had these artistic cultures that had had enough. Poland did too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. Go ahead. Uh, Try and pronounce some. Vajda and Polanski <laughs> there you in go. film. And I don't know, Jerzy Kaczynski maybe. I'm Pre- just pr- between the wars. No, you're oh, talking about sorry, post-war. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking about post-war. But there was, you know, all these places, you know, they had, they were, they were deeply cultural places that were not part of the larger Russian universe and nobody likes being told what to do. Let me tell you that that's an omnibus standard right there. That's a t-shirt. Nobody likes being told what to do. Being told what to do is compatible with Marxism though. Hey, hey. The government, the government, uh, tells you everything to do. But in Poland, um, there was a, not a literary rebellion at first, but a working class rebellion, which you want to think is not yeah. compatible with. They should be perfectly happy living in a worker's paradise. Like they should like mid-century Poland, right? Like, uh, it's, it's one thing to kill everybody that wears glasses, but boy, if the factory workers don't get on board your worker's paradise. Yeah. Who is, who is it working for? (laughs) What are we doing here? (laughs) And, um, in 1970, there was in the, uh, in the shipyards there, uh, there were in the shipyards of Szczecin, they're kind of in the Northern, what would have been a Prussian, uh, kind of state for hundreds of years, Wow! but returned Finally returned to its rightful owners. Returned to the, uh, the Poles who... After years of oppression. Who kind of didn't even really live there before they pushed out the millions of Germans that did. But they put consonants back in the name, though. They were happy to have it back. They were. Um, so Szczecin was, you know, kind of a, a subsidiary city, I guess, of Gdansk. And um, they were a shipbuilding center for for all of the the Soviet bloc and they were, they had arrived at a place where, you know, there was a food shortage, uh, wages were stagnant, inflation was rampant and the workers at the shipyard started to protest in a, it kind of in the spirit of this, um, of this time. Interesting. I wonder what their models are 
for, you know, for protest. You know, young people in the West can see, have seen examples of successful protests. They see protests near and far on TV. I mean, I wonder what the, I wonder what the cultural knowledge is of protest culture in Poland in the 50s and 60s. Well, there's a lot of awareness of the AFL-CIO. I mean, this this is a time in American unions where they've started to become a little bloated with with patronage and corruption. But they're coming out of a period of decades where they were truly like a like a global success story, right? The American unions of the mid-century. And is that known behind the Iron Curtain? Yeah, but also... Interesting, like that that's a... You know that's a great strength of of potential American propaganda. Even, yeah, even though the biggest American propagandists probably hated the unions. But also in Poland and in the whole Eastern Bloc, there is even just a just a homegrown sensibility that this is what happens: the workers rise up, and um, and it was the initial premise, and now a, a real awareness that the workers are kind of taking it in the shorts, and that the Politburo. Uh, system of perks and corruption had beca- had betrayed communism, yeah. had betrayed Marxism. So you can see it as a patriotic movement. That's right. And there was, you know, it, there was similarly, I mean, not, uh, not in these initial protests, but like a, a, a sense that just saying the benefits of socialism are bread, butter, and a sausage in every pot it, isn't enough. That's not the same as as these glimpses of the freedom of the West. Once you've heard Jefferson Airplane, man. You can't go back. How are you going to go back? So the protests in uh, Szczecin actually resulted in major, major protests in the streets. The Communist Party headquarters on fire. Um, and then ultimately the secret police machine gunned into a crowd of shipyard workers, uh, killing 30 and injuring a thousand people. It's a tragedy, but that's the kind of thing that creates a movement. Right. And it was, um, it's one that, I mean, we look at pictures of Prague spring all the time as a kind of like, this was the sixties, but, uh, the Chechen shipyard protests of 1970s, they're not kind of, they're not emblematic of anything, right? Well, you know, they, they had the misfortune of not coming in the middle of a cultural uprising in the West, right? And it did not have, you know, the other two protests, uh, the other two uprisings have both the poetic uh, sense of like a national uh, gesture toward freedom that was crushed by the outside. This was workers arguing for wages. And crushed internally by the Polish secret police, so there it wasn't quite this. You couldn't quite point it at um, Brezhnev and say "j'accuse." Did word get out though? I mean, yeah, and and well, and it was you know Nixon era, and so really unclear. This is the problem with this time. Like these are a left labor union arguing, you know, like violently resisting what would be the global emblem of the leftism, which is state communism. Who's Nixon going to support? Like which, how far left does Nixon get? Nixon's doing the let them fight me. He's like, I don't know. But what it does is 
because of the secret police crackdown, it sparks within Poland a, a the uh, you know the em- the embers the well the flame of a of a resistance movement, and one of the most charismatic kind of man the barricades uh, shipyard workers was a shipyard electrician named Lekwalesa, someone that you know what I will talk about a lot in the show. He was not necessarily like an instigator, but he was an articulate uh, guy that could stand up and he had a good sense of humor. He could rally a crowd and um, he had a fantastic mustache. One of the best. Really great. He had a great mustache. You're saying had, but by the way, he's still alive and still still has a mustache. He does. It's it's less, it's less flourishing. His old mustache, his 1970s mustache, God, it went from ear to ear. Yeah, uh, now, now it's he looks. He's gotten broader as his mustache has got. Maybe the mustache is the same width and just he's, he, he got wider. He fit. Yeah, there there were a lot more sausages in his pot <laughs> than there might have been in 1970 <laughs> in recent years. He now looks like kind of the like a a, a florid British butcher, <laughs> a village butcher, or uh-huh. or some kind of functionary. Uh, and he also, you know, he always had a cigarette. He spoke very plainly. He was not a he yeah, was not, not a highfalutin he's not guy. intellectual, right? No, he was an elect, he was an electrician and a um you know like a like a regular guy. And that appealed to everyone. Uh it did not appeal to the secret police who it appealed to everyone except the secret police. Yeah, who cracked down on him and cracked down on this movement, but by 1976 there uh there was even more kind of economic turmoil in Poland. And, um, and there started to be, there started to come out of this, this kind of post 1970s, post crackdown resistance, a new feeling that this, this was reaching a boiling point in Poland. And this was mostly invisible to the West. As it remains. Interesting. Um, Since it turns out to be a real key arena for what ends up happening. Ken, we're often in a situation where our small business, Omnibus LLC, needs to send a check specifically to me. And um, We're in that situation roughly once a month. Once a month. And uh, and we've had a surprisingly difficult time uh, systematizing our small business checking. A lot of banks don't cater to small businesses because that's not where the business checking value is for them. So if you're a small business, you, you're kind of competing in a space and dealing with products built for maximizing much bigger businesses. And in our situation, it seems like w- w- while you and Mindy could just put a bunch of cash in an envelope and you could hand it to me. A big briefcase full you, of 20s? You really like to send checks and, uh, and boy, I like getting checks. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I got to say a real a casualty of the pandemic for me is people not wanting to send personal checks because nobody's in the office to, oh, right. to, to sign and mail them. You right. Know? So I started getting virtual payments and it's just not as fun as the occasional freelancer check in the old mailbox. Yeah, I'm walking old... out there like Charlie Brown every day. No Valentines. No Valentines again. Well, let me tell you about a new option for small business checking. Please do. It's called Novo. Novo? N-O-V-O. 
they've built a new kind of business checking uh, that specializes in small business checking. Wow. That Mm -hmm. would mean, for me, that would mean no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. Well, Novo is here for you, my friend. You're exactly right. Unlike the traditional banking model, instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow, which we could use here at Omnibus LLC. That's perfect. Would it integrate with like Stripe or Shopify or QuickBooks Online? (laughs) And more. Would it do that seamlessly or seem fully? (laughs) No, it would be without seams. Seamless. That's what I want because this is not a Mac Weldon ad. No. We want seamless integration. Seamless. I don't know how waterproof Novo is, but they are seamless. And now Omnibus listeners can sign up for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution. To sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash omnibus. Plus, Omnibus listeners will get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co, that's not .com, leave the M off, .co, which is the URL for the state of Colorado? Yes, I'm sure that's what it is. novo.co slash omnibus to sign up for free. Novo.co slash omnibus. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, I remember when it got to public awareness in the West. It was before the wall came down. Oh, yeah. What year did Valencia get the Nobel Prize? 83. Okay. Um, And that was really the first time, like, I saw any Western news coverage of the movement, honestly. Oh, well, so... So, I, you know, as somebody who was around in 1980 and, you know, I was 12 in 1980 and political, it was really huge then. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. Um, But it really, in 1978, a little something um, happened called the the election of Pope John Paul II to the popage. Is that what it's called? That little thing that happened? Yeah, the popage. It was called the election of Pope John Paul II to the popage. Yeah, he got the popage. That's what the Wikipedia entry is called. In 1978. And he, famously, is a Pole, or was, and he was, you know, the first, he was the first Polish pontiff, as we say. Glass ceiling for so many years. And he had been the, uh, he had been a cardinal in, in Poland, and he was a anti-communist, as Catholics right. uh, were during the time. And he believed in, because Poland officially had no state religion, but it was still a very devout country. And John Paul advocated for, uh, you know, the Polish national spirit in, uh, as a, you know, as a counter to Soviet communism in Poland, but then in general, a kind of anti-communist stance globally. And John Paul- 78, you said, right? 78. So that's when this starts to make the news, right? When he, he's, cause that's an amazing pulpit for Polish anti-communism. It is. And he- Literally a pulpit. He, uh, he actually goes to Poland and at the time- the Polish government did not think uh, that that was much of a threat. 
Because there, yeah, what was their treatment of religion? I guess there was most of those East German states still had. Yeah, they were they were they were contemptuous of it. Eastern European states, but they felt that they felt that they had freed the masses from the from the jackboot of Catholicism, and really, I think from within their their echo chamber, felt like ah, the Pope's going to come and a bunch of you know there's going to be a few hundred little old ladies that go. Um, throw flowers at him, but it's, it, you know, it's going to be a disaster for him because religion is one of the, one of the vices of the West. Well, millions show up for Pope John Paul. Hometown hero. Pope and John yeah, Paul. right. And I, I mean, even in the United States, the fact that he was Polish was a major. Uh, yeah, bring that guy to Chicago and look out. Exactly. It was a big deal. And, um, and it, Kind of inspires, he actually says, um, like, your loyalty should be to the church and not the state. He says as much. And the, you know, the Polish government is kind of caught unawares, embarrassed by this. Uh, But on on the labor side, in 1980, the... The, the shipyards in particular are a place where this um, this kind of discontent is fomented. Oh, yeah. The strike is, I guess, when I started to see this on TV. Yeah. Not the Nobel Prize. Um, in 1980, in the summer of 1980, a woman who worked in the shipyards by the name of Anna Walentinovich, Walentinovich, Valentinovich. We'll hear from Poland. Let's say, let's go with that. Anna Valentinovich. Please, Poland, help us here. Your only um, hope. She was five months shy of retirement, but because she was accused of being active in these kind of, you know, like underground resistance movements, she was denied her pension. Mm. Five months short of retirement. Not compatible with Marxism. And it sparked a ton of like it sparked a ton of protests, and in the uh, Gdansk shipyard in particular, um, another woman by the name of Alina Plenkowska was kind of instrumental in pushing this. She was she was a member of the kind of union organizing silent group that you know used on a. V- Velin, uh, Anna Valentinovich's. Her name has changed since the, you lost it. Valentinovich's uh, forced retirement as a kind of galvanizing moment. And uh, the protests, you know, the, uh, the protesters were locked out of the Gdansk shipyards and very famously Lekwalesa climbed over the fence and it was a, you know, a real photo op. Yeah. They took over the the shipyard. They declared uh, Solidarność, the the this union of uh, solidarity. This is a new, there has not been a, this is a new trade union. They've decided they're going to form. There are no there are no um, independent trade unions. Not compatible with Marxism. Not at all. Um, there was a trade union, but it was a state run trade union called the Polish United Workers Party and they were they felt like Solidarność was not compatible with Marxism. When I was a kid, I called it Solidarność 
because the logo on the N, the, the farthest uh, pole of the N goes up and it has a flag flying from it. Oh, right. And my, my child's eye, it looked like an eye. And of course, solidarity, I assumed it was Solidarność. I thought, I think it's weird that you even know the Polish name, like the CNN always just said Solidarity. Yeah. Well, so in my culture of, you know, liberal Democrats and pro-union people of the late seventies, like I had and still have a big button that says Solidarność in Polish Oh, it's a flagpole. It's got the Polish it's a flag flagpole. on the end. And I, I used to wear it on my denim jacket. Yeah. Like this was a big moment, right? This was, and, and very confusing from a, from a general perspective to support a leftist reply to communism. Yeah. Because the, because Pope John Paul was a, a Catholic and by its very nature, a conservative, right? The Catholic church in Poland represented the old guard, the, uh, uh, you know, a conservatism. It was, he was, he wasn't coming from like a central American Catholic activism. Social justice. Yeah. He was kind of implying that stuff, but it was really appealing to establishment, disenfranchised establishment people. But then there was this other excitement that this was a leftist rebellion within Poland. Well, it became global news and the Polish government, again, caught kind of unawares, uh, initially allowed Walesa, who became the figurehead of the group. And again, he was a, a tremendously charismatic person. A lot, a lot of the, uh, the initial and then subsequent kind of brain trust behind the union were women. Huh. Um, and you know, outside of, outside of Poland, Unknown. Exactly. Or, you know, they became politicians later, but but not part I mean, of the story. It's probably a very canny decision to put the, you know, mustachioed guy out front yeah. in, in a traditionalist worker culture. With his, you know, with his constant cigarette and whatnot. But uh, within, within very few uh, weeks, there were 20 different, in, 20 different unions and then increasingly more were formed in different businesses or businesses in different uh, sectors, sectors, manufacturing businesses sectors are not compatible with <laughs> and all of these different smaller unions became part of the solidarity, independent, self-governing trade union. Mm -hmm. And then that extended throughout Poland. There became a rural solidarity of farmers oh, and farm workers until uh, the following year by 1981, there were 10 million members of the union which represented about a third of all workers in Poland. And the government of Poland really didn't like it. And they tried a lot of things. They, they, um, they imposed martial law in 1981. They threw Walesa in prison. And I guess I should pr be pronouncing it. Walesa. Walesa. For some reason there's a N sound. Yeah. Valesa. Like why, why do we say Valenza? Don't know. Um, Valencia. It's a wonderful it's place in Spain. It's from Valencia, California. And so they spend, you know, they spend most of the eighties trying to beat the union down and it doesn't ever work. Uh, like Walesa, Walesa. I guess in Polish that 
E has a nasal thing on it. The E has a little thing dangling from it, and that gives it a nasal sound, like in like when you'd say in France, you know, coca van. So what is it? Valenza. 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 <laughs> I think in you know it's we often a, say, it's approximated in English with an extra n. We say Lequilessa, or at least oh, I always did in the. Oh, 80s. I think we I said Valenza. Valenza. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe that's um, maybe that's like post wall comes down yeah that's why we said budapest instead of budapest <laughs> which we should have done if you have any complaints about our polish pronunciations please write mindy jennings at she handles all of the uh all of the polish phonetics on the show so he is awarded the nobel prize in or the nobel peace prize in 1983 for his uh his efforts and the poles the polish government the communist government is just baffled by this and and a lot of nobels for anti-communism at the time yeah you know was, because at the time that's that's the human rights struggle is against a, a lot of these authoritarian governments on the left exactly and it was a big uh it was a it resulted in a lot of turnover in polish prime ministers during this uh or first secretaries during this this brief period like uh when solidarity first arose the uh, the head of Poland was Edward Gie- Edward Girella, and he was at first kind of sympathetic, or at least didn't want to crack down on him too hard. The Soviets didn't like it, and he was out. And uh, Stanislaw Kania came in, and he was overheard criticizing the Russians on a secret microphone, and he was out. <gasps> a hot mic issue behind <laughs> the Iron Curtain. <laughs> it was, and then. Uh, General uh, Jaruzelski was put in, and now he's a hardliner, you know, an army guy. And they throw it around, and they try all these different things. Well, and then and, and Walesa in prison. I remember Jaruzelski and Jaruzelski on the news with his big trapezoidal yeah. forehead. Yeah, he looks like the kind of uh, like a Jack Kirby idea of what a, a <laughs> communist dictator would look like. Yeah, he was classic, and that was from that's peak communist dictator. Think of all the great haircuts and all the great big hats and, and the great glasses frames. Yeah, and the and the the weird suits that are like hmm, poorly tailored. Like that seems like <laughs> a strange way to. The fur hats were on there just to hide his weird forehead. Like right, you know, if you wear that guy wears a skin tight hat, it looks like a big fur hat. What was interesting in Poland was that the intelligentsia actually followed the labor union. Um, hmm. the intelligentsia was at first kind of like, what, what, who, you know, they were busy writing poems or, or whatever intelligentsia do, but they weren't a spearhead of it until, um, until the, the labor unions were getting like all the great, all the, the great press. The intelligentsia switched to the winning side. <laughs> uh-huh. We could be doing kinetic sculpture, but we'll and go march. A, uh, like a. So an artist and kind of theorist by the name of Major Yushchenko, and the title of Major was um, was in ironic mockery of oh, is that, that right? tendency. Um, they started to stage a kind of contemporaneous and unrelated like mockery art project called... So the Orange Alternative was led by a kind of activist and art kook in the 80s East Block style by the name of Waldemar Fiedrich, 
which is sort of a Polish spelling of a German name. I have no idea how they pronounce it in Poland, and it's it's now impossible for me to. And I can tell you don't even care. F Y D R Y C H Fiedrich. Let's call it. Let's call it that. And again, right, Mindy, if you are Polish. Nope, his name is Fiedrich now. Um, Too late. And they called his nickname was Major Fiedrich because it was a kind of joke name to elevate him to a, the status of you know a Polish politician. And um, the the uh, the labor unions were uh, they were spray spray painting uh, uh, anti communist graffiti all over Danzig or Gdansk. I would love to spray anti communist graffiti all over Glenn Danzig. Yeah, I know, but he's too small. You would only get one little <laughs> you get one letter. <laughs> and then the the communist regime would come along and paint over all of the uh, all of the graffiti. Unlike the city of Seattle, which apparently has stopped painting over graffiti. If you've driven down I-5 recently, yep. it's just, it looks like a... We're out of gray paint. It looks like a music video from 1981. Um, but they were Johnny on the spot about painting over the graffiti. And Major Fiedrich had the, uh, I don't know, brilliant inspiration that he went and painted gnomes wearing orange gnome hats... Classic, Did you say gnomes? Classic gnomes. Are gnomes particularly Polish in the same way that trolls are Scandinavian? Yeah, I mean, gnomes are, I think all of the area around the Baltic Sea is very gnome. It's gnome, gnome turf. The Poles identify with little gnomes because it's also hard for them to change a light bulb. <laughs> right? No. Oof, ouch. No. Too soon. We don't do that anymore. Um, they called them dwarves, but we would know them as gnomes. They don't look like hobbit dwarves. They look like, well, they're gnomes. They got the big peaked hats. Yeah, they're lawn, they're lawn gnomes. And peaked hats that kind of fall down. They look like a Danish thing, except in Polish. And so his insight was, we can't paint anti-communist graffiti, but if everywhere they paint over it, we just paint gnomes, what are they going to do? They, they can't could, arrest you for painting gnomes. They could paint over the gnomes, I they guess. They can paint over the gnomes, but... Uh, but the gnomes are so pow- powerful and popular <laughs> that the very, regime won't dare. Very quickly, that's what happened. Uh, orange-hatted gnomes became a symbol of resistance against the regime. And although they're cracking down on the labor union, they're they're jailing the organizers, the secret police is all over them. All of a sudden, this kind of, you know, this uh, m- almost merry explosion of resistance that didn't require that you be a electrician in a shipyard caught on. And so all across Poland, this, this orange revolution started to happen. I've thought of, I've thought of doing an omnibus about uh, a similar use of humor in the, in the anti-government movement at this time, which was uh, like a, a rally that centered around, which revolved around ketchup. Do you know this story? The uh, the regime, uh, you know, at some point during the struggle during the eighties, had uh, or the the protesters who had been told they couldn't wear colors identifying themselves with the labor movement had started to wear Soviet red. Ironically, so the government would be in the position of arresting people wearing communist red because they were doing it as a bit. Right. And it got to some point in a rally where this guy started putting, uh, a hot guy on a hot dog stand started putting ketchup on everybody's sausages, and uh, it was getting so into the spirit of the thing that he got arrested. 
So a man got arrested for putting ketchup on hot dogs, even though ketchup is the color of the Soviet <laughs> bloc. And this was the kind of thing that like further galvanized the movement. Um, and people started eating ketchup as a symbol of, of pro-solidarity sentiment. Maybe that explains the ketchup on spaghetti that I was served so many times <laughs> in the Czech Republic. I mean, it's worse than Cincinnati. So yeah, I think this idea that you know, there's this kind of merry prankster side to right. protest that the that the state won't really know what to do with is actually it actually works. It does, and in this case, the the premise was: Are they really going to crack down on gnomes? Yeah, because if they do, they look so ridiculous. That's the thing. Yeah, uh, there was another one where um, a, a popular anti-Putin technique now is to release ping pong balls from the parade. Because everyone looks stupid, and you put little anti-Putin slogans on the ping pong balls, but everybody looks stupid chasing down a ping pong ball. Yes, they do. So the second you've got the secret police running after subversive ping pong balls, you have, uh, you know, the, the state has lost the argument. Well, this ended up being called the revolution of dwarves, <laughs> or the, the, the revol- yeah, the revolution of dwarves, uh, which was great, uh, and that was a big part of of what became the Solidarity Revolution. And what happened was, you know, uh, Lech Walesa out of prison, Nobel Peace Prize winner, the government kept needing to meet with him because they believed that he could tame the labor unions, tame the unrest. What if we did this? What if we did that? And eventually they started to, uh, you know, they started to try and make common cause with him. Now, what was extremely confusing about this time was that Solidarity uh, was supported by all of the leftist movements globally, most, like the AFL-CIO got $300,000 together by passing the hat around their membership and sent it to Solidarity in Solidarity. They were funded from overseas. Um, In England, the Miners' Labor Union... Uh, thought that they were betraying the communist cause by fighting against national, you know, communism by, you know, betraying the Polish Politburo, and so the United Mine Workers of the UK were against solidarity. Uh, I but, guess that's your era. Mine workers wouldn't have had much to donate anyway. But that's partly because Thatcher and Reagan, right supported Solidarity. Exactly. Because it was anti-communist. The CIA secretly sent Solidarity 10 million bucks. Hmm. But Congress openly, through something I've never heard of, called the National Endowment for Democracy, openly sent them $10 million. So... Isn't that a problem? Can't the, uh, like... Well, you'd think. How does does an anti-government movement in a police state accept... $10 $10 million from the United States Congress. And the... the It was all in Levi's and Springsteen albums. The Polish militia, and Walesa said something to the effect of like, we don't need money, you know, send us anything. Corn, uh, wrenches, like we'll take any support you can. Because in response to the regime saying, well, you're a, a you know funded by the West, he was like, we'll take money from anybody. Um, we're trying to create a workers, you know, this is a workers revolution. Hard to argue. So it was, you know, it was globally confusing. Um, And one of the things that the Orange Revolution did was 
the, one of the concessions they got from the government was that they, uh, the union could publish newsletters as long as at the top of the newsletter it said for intra-trade union use only. And so then the orange revolution, you know, the, the, the dwarf hat revolution or the, the gnome hat gang started publishing anti-government newspapers and they just put for intra, you know, trade union across the top and got away with it. So by the, by 1988, 89, um, the government was in talks with solidarity and by, um, by the summer of 89, they conceded um, that there would be somewhat free elections to the, you know, to the governing body of Poland, the first free elections in Poland since uh, time immemorial. And when they, you know, when these, and what they did was the, the, the Polish governing body is called the Sejiu. And they said, says you, yeah, says you, and they said, we're, you know, we're not going to like make all the seats available. We'll make 161 seats electable in the group. And then we're going to, we're going to, uh, what invent a body, a governing body called a Senate. And there are going to be a hundred seats in the Senate that will be electable positions. And in June of 89, they had elections 99 of a hundred Senate seats were solidarity candidates and all 161 of the contestable seats in the Seju went to solidarity members. And this was really the, this is June of 89. This was the thing that lit the torch because by December of 89, the Berlin wall was down. Yeah. It's a very quick series of dominoes at that point. And, you know, and uh, the Hungarian like opening happened right around the same time. The Hungarian opening. The Hungarian it's chess, opening. It's a chess book novel I'm working on. Uh, but it was a, you know, this was the domino effect and it started here finally with the, with the, um, the, the concession, the enormous concession on the part of the Polish regime to solidarity. Again, always trying to control them, hoping that this one last concession will bring them under control. And in the end, it spelled the end. They just had the numbers. They were too big to be ignored. Yeah. Well, Esso was elected president. The first, first post-communist president of Poland. Right? First democratic president of Poland. And, um, and was, Polish, was president of Poland till 95. And he was the one that, that brought in, uh, you know, he privatized all the state businesses. He brought in all of the kind of democratic um, those the, that heady time in the in the early '90s when it seemed like democracy was ascendant and it was the end of history, uh, but unfortunately he was not as good of a president as he was a labor u- leader. He didn't understand diplomacy. He didn't, you know, the job of president is a lot of bureaucracy, and he wasn't good at delegating. And he put his cronies in and lost the faith of the. Polish people and the subsequent president came from, you know, he was a communist who changed his tie yeah. and um, 
Did, Solidar- did Solidarity ever operate as a political party? Is it, it, is it still a trade union now? It did. It tried for a while to be a party. It's a trade union now, but it has a you know it only has a million members compared to its ten million. Um, Valencia turns eighty next year. Gorbachev's still alive in his nineties. Yeah, and, so. and and Lech is what seventy eight, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, seventy nine, I think. And so he became a kind of, you know, a sort of problematic figure in he 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 was a global star and so he went kind of like you on a, on speaking tours. He gets paid to give inspirational speeches to I guess both labor unions and Thatcherite exactly. communities. <laughs> um, Right-wingers in America, left-wingers in Europe, everybody loves him. Everybody loves him. And he um you know, he kind of he had a, he had a post post presidential career in Poland as a statesman. Do you think he ever just does electrician work still? He actually, after he lost the presidency no. in ninety five, he said, "I'm going back to Gdansk <laughs> shipyard and I'm going to work as an electrician." And he went back and did it, and he was like, "Wait a minute, this sucks. <laughs> this like, is way worse than I remember." I was working with the Pope like you know six <laughs> weeks ago. And I don't want to do this, so he stopped. That was that was a little bit of a funny. That's move. why I always try to fly coach with my kids. You know, you can you, <laughs> you can always ratchet up luxury, but you can't ratchet it back down. Um, but in a surprising turn, in recent years, there was evidence that Lequilessa in the early seventies, right after the. Um, the big protests in uh, in Shechen signed an agreement with the secret police to act as an informant. Really? He, he wasn't doing a great job. I mean, if you're the leader of the movement, who are you going to turn in besides you? Right. And he, so he denied it and said, that's just propaganda. That's just trying to, you know, uh, besmirch my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of prominent political brothers in Poland by the name of Kaczynski and they are, they, oh, yeah, they're twins, right? Yeah, tw- And they, be- they were early friends who became then, you know, conservative opponents of him and they really pushed this story. Uh, and well, that's a kind of sadly, um, all of his denials felt very not very convincing um right and a lot of them kind of appealed how dare you you, and a lot of them uh, appealed to that um that like you you would be nothing without me uh i'm the one that freed poland how dare how dare you like uh do this how dare you is not a substantive counter argument but he said you know they're all clearly forged it's not um it's you know this is a this is a campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but in very recent times, a former interior minister, papers came to light when uh, when General Czeslaw Kizizak, who was the last communist interior minister of po- Poland, mm-hmm. um, he had these files that were the secret policeman's ball, the secret police files that indicated that, uh, that Walesa had signed 
commitments to cooperate with the secret police under the code name Bolek. And there were handwriting analysis done, and it was concluded that these were, in fact, um, papers signed by him. He made some very confusing denials at one point saying, oh, well, I might have signed some papers, but I didn't actually do anything. Well, if that's true, so what happened? He was young and rising in the movement and they got, got, him got, in, got persuaded. But then once he... They twisted his arm and for... I mean, he was... A, but, he, but he couldn't have been informing the whole time. Like as his stature rose in solidarity, he uh, he realized they didn't have as much leverage and stopped working with them. I think the, the sense is that in 1970 and 71, he actually kind of informed on his colleagues, but gradually stopped until 1976 when he was, when the secret police said he's no longer a valuable asset and were striking him from the rolls, but whatever, they surely did secret police stuff and leveraged this against him, you know, held his head under a bucket of water or said that they were going to, his wife was going to lose her job or whatever secret police do. But it's pretty clear that he, uh, collaborated with them, at least in, in little bits. They didn't use it to try to discredit them later, which is interesting. The communists, yeah. no. Maybe the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. Yeah, and it seems like whatever he did, it was inconsequential. But unfortunately, his, um, after kind of admitting that he had signed these pieces of paper, he then recanted and said, I didn't sign anything, and this is all, these are all forged, and this is an attempt to discredit me, and I'm the father of the country, and how dare you? And so sadly... I mean, there's no way that he will ever be um, dislodged from his status as the, you know, the the leader of this movement that that arguably put an end to Soviet communism. But it's just the the last little kind of twist that uh, all of our heroes are slightly compromised. Everything is gray in the world. And Lequilessa maybe is compatible with Marxism, or maybe evidence you can't tax the rich. And that concludes Solidarność, entry 1187.EC0409, certificate number 26170, in the omnibus. Uh... We know that uh, Polish is obviously the lingua franca of the entire United Earth. In the future, you're going to want to send us your pronunciation suggestions. Yeah. You can put that to our attention at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project, on various social media platforms. All of my pronunciations are derived entirely from being 12 years old and seeing all these names in the newspaper and I feeling... I just say things the way Peter Jennings used to say them. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it was just I was shooting from the hip then, and I'm shooting from the hip now. Uh, you can send your weird, uh, L's with lines through them and E's with, uh, tails dangling from them in email to, uh, the omnibus project at gmail.com. Actually don't. If you think we're really in- inviting you to, <laughs> uh, we're not. You, we will never need to say <laughs> the name of, of these labor leaders of the seventies again. It, or, or if we do, it's much more likely that saying Lequilessa is going to be understandable here in the United States than saying exactly this was the one hour in my life where I needed to know how to say Valentinovich's name and I didn't learn and now it's too late
<laughs> it's no please, longer relevant to my interests. Please don't let that discredit your faith that the Omnibus Project knows what it's talking about. <laughs> we know what we're talking about. We're just pronouncing it wrong. You uh, can mail us things to P.O. Box 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What have we here? Two beautifully hand-colored uh, Dayglow postcards. Those are beautiful. Of a dragonfly and a squirrel, respectively. You're the dragonfly. I'm the squirrel. Yes. Uh, Lindsay got some uh, Color Your Own postcards as a Christmas present. That squirrel has a fern for a tail. Yes, I get the plant squirrel uh, hybrid because he's cheerful and spunky, but also dependable. Not to you. Apparently, I'm cheerful and spoken. Whereas you get the Dayglow Dragonfly because you are psychedelic and groovy, but also with a, uh, a naturey, a naturalistic vibe. True. Uh, thank you for the uh, for the New Year wishes, um, Lindsay Willett, a libertarian crystal futureling. I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. The crystals have discovered Ayn Rand, uh-huh. and now we're in trouble. The cool. borax is. Uh, Oh, these are these are fully um, fully written here. Uh huh. Lindsay doesn't mess around. No, the one for you, yes. Mm-hmm. Psychedelic groovy, right? Find your fellow futurelings by looking for them online uh, on Facebook or Reddit or wherever wherever better podcast fans are sold. You can support the omnibus on our Patreon. The way uh, Joshua did. Today's show was a kind of an outgrowth of a couple suggestions by listener Joshua, who lives in Poland. Is that right? He lives or works in, in Poland in uh, Szczecin, and he he had a lot of things to say about the town and how interesting it was. It's got a Hitler connection. It's got right. A, I thought we were going to do the yeah. There's a balcony there where, where Hitler planned his. Palace to be. Oh, even better. They built an exact replica of Hitler's offices in the Reich Chancellery in Poland, expecting that he was going to, that was going to be his forward operating office after they'd conquered Russia. Wow. And so all of the times that you see Hitler in his office in movies, it's actually probably filmed in these offices. And they're, you know, down to the... It's a theme park version. Yeah, down to the, the little knobs in the desks. And I think we were resistant to that because, again... Too much Hitler. So much Hitler on Omnibus. And, uh, but he More seems, than he merits. He seems to love uh, living in Poland. And uh, Stetchen has a lot of interesting things about it. He really uh, challenged me to pronounce the name right. And I don't think I did. Szczecin? Szczecin. I don't know. Uh, it's got, it, it It doesn't have any T's in it. It's spelled S-Z-C-Z-E-C-I-N. We don't have a lot of words in English that start with the sh sound. Yeah, Szczecin. Uh, and it sounds like it has like three T's in it to my pronunciation. But he, he thought it was hilarious to get me to say it multiple times. But I... Whenever but, John says Szczecin at home, you should say Gesundheit and have a good <laughs> laugh. should say there's no L in Soviet. Uh, but yeah, it was a, uh, a one I realized that the town played a role in the founding of Solidarity, which he pointed out. I felt like, hmm, that's the show. Uh, Joshua donated at the washing bear level and got to sing. Got at least that much. <laughs> I said the name of his town <laughs> 10 times. Hope you're satisfied. We've said his name a few times, too. Yeah, if that's, if that's what he's in it for. He's a good guy. 
so if you have enjoyed Omnibus, you better not uh, supporting the Patreon. You're at least getting a partial experience. There's a monthly addenda show and lots of other cool perks. Check it out at patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Hugelings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. I'd love to say that whole sentence as fast as I can. It's not even one sentence. I have it written down as two sentences. I can no longer say it anymore. Like, I just hear I just the phonetics it. of it, like, freezing cold and nine cheese oil. And <laughs> That's right. I don't even know what I'm saying. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.